We read God's word in Joshua 10. And in that chapter, we'll read the first 30 verses. Now it came to pass when Adino-Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and to her king, so he had done to Ai and to her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah, king of Lachish, and unto Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. The men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants, come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon, and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. And spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day, and there was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled, and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them, and stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, 
for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth which remain until this very day. And that day Joshua took Makeda and smote it with the edge of the sword, and the king thereof he utterly destroyed them and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain, and he did to the king of Makeda as he did unto the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him unto Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord delivered it also and the king thereof into the hand of Israel. And he smote it with the edge of the sword and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain in it, but did unto the king thereof as he did unto the king of Jericho. We'll stop reading there, but the rest of the chapter just goes on to show how Joshua went to the different parts of the southern part of uh, the land of Canaan, and conquered the various kings and kingdoms of those areas. Call your attention verses 12 through 14 this evening. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like it before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Two things about the event recorded in our text are amazing, and the text draws our attention to both of these aspects, beloved. The first is that a sun, which very regularly rises and sets in a 24-hour cycle, stayed its course, held its position in the heavens for about a whole day, so that there was one day in the history of this universe that lasted 48 hours. And there was no day like that before it or after. 
And in the second place, that the son did that, not at the Lord's initiative, of course the Lord did it, of course the Lord controlled it, but the Lord did so hearkening unto the voice of a man. And Joshua didn't merely pray to God that God would hold the sun in its course, but he gave the sun a command, and he gave the moon a command, and the sun and the moon listened. Two things in the text that are noteworthy that draw our attention to Jehovah God as Israel's God, the one who fought for Israel, defended Israel, and the one who magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel as her leader. We draw attention this evening to our text in order to be built up in our faith that this God is our God. The cause on behalf of which he caused the sun to stand still is our cause. The goal, the deliverance of Israel relates to our deliverance and our salvation. Israel had crossed the Jordan River sometime earlier. And they've made significant progress in claiming the property, the territories of the promised land of Canaan for their own. Having conquered Jericho just to the west of the Jordan River, they controlled a narrow strip along and just west of the Jordan River. Eight miles north of Jericho was the city of Gilgal, which they made their base of operations. From Gilgal, they had gone east, or rather westward, to fight against the kings of Ai and of Bethel. Now these were small kingdoms, small cities. And therefore the Israelites had thought, you remember the story, that the Lord would easily give them into their hands, but they found instead that if they did not consciously rely on Jehovah God, he would not just give them the land. And so they tried twice and were defeated twice in the battle against Ai before the Lord said, go a third time, this time I'll give them into your hand. When the Israelites conquered Ai and Bethel, they controlled now not only a little strip just west of the Jordan River, but another little strip going east and west that basically divided the land of Canaan in two, the northern part and the southern part. Much territory they yet needed to gain and to take over, but they considered that they controlled a very important yet small section. And it's at that point you recall that the Gibeonites a city, we're told, that was even greater and stronger than Ai, said, we are no match for these Israelites. Let's make a league with them. And without consulting Jehovah in the matter, Joshua and the Israelites' leaders made a league with the Gibeonites, assuming, as the Gibeonites pretended to be, that the Gibeonites also were from a far country and had traveled a far way to that land and not realizing that they were inhabitants. And that brings us to chapter 10. Because the five kings that controlled the whole southern part of the land of Canaan, 
were the tribes of Simeon and Judah, Benjamin and Ephraim and Dan would settle a large area. The five primary kings said, if the Gibeonites did that, we are doomed. Let's band together. In numbers is our strength. And they made war, not against Israel, but against Gibeah. And the Gibeonites let Joshua know they are in trouble. And Joshua comes to defend them and deliver them. And in that battle, the sun stood still for an entire day. The event, our text says, is recorded in the book of Jashur, the book of the righteous one. A book that we don't have anymore, but there are other allusions to that book in the Old Testament scriptures. But more uh, significantly for us, the event is recorded in the word of God, the infallibly inspired scriptures, in which Jehovah says to you and to me what he did and how he did it and why he did it. And we bow in faith before him this evening and we will not try to give any naturalistic explanation to the miracle, but we will say, praise Jehovah. I call your attention to the text under the theme, the day that lasted two days. Notice first that it was Jehovah's doing. Second, let's notice Jehovah's means. And finally, Jehovah's purpose. The wonder of which the text speaks primarily is that the sun and the moon stand still so that that day is as long as two days. Now the inhabitants of Gibeon have called for Joshua. He's up in Gilgal. As the crow flies, it's 20 miles from Gilgal to Gibeon. And that means that it's a significant journey for an army. Not only that, but it's an uphill journey into the mountains. And yet in the space of In evening, that is during the night, Joshua and the army of Israel respond to the call for help and come to Gibeon's defense. They had an opportunity to destroy, or rather to let the Gibeonites be destroyed. They had an opportunity to say, oh, we made a promise rather hastily. Maybe if we don't come to their defense, the Lord will take care of this problem for us. But the people of God keep their vows, even when those vows are made hastily. And they run to the help of those to whom they have promised help. The enemy is more in number than the Israelites and the Gibeonites, but the battle does not go well for the enemy. On the one hand, because the enemy is surprised, but even more because, as the scriptures say, the Lord discomfited them. That is, he threw their armies into confusion. He did that other times too, turning the armies against themselves so that the people of Israel hardly had to fight. The enemy army destroyed itself. And in addition, we're told in the context that the Lord rained down hailstones from heaven, so that the Lord accomplishes a great victory for his people. At that point, Joshua understands, though, 
That he and the army cannot just sit back. The Lord is fighting for us, but we can't expect he could. He could destroy each and every one of the enemies, but we can't assume that. We also must fight. And so he and the Israelites fighting realize the battle is great. The southern area into which the five king, from which the five kings came into which they're running again is a large area. It will take time to find all the remnants of the armies and destroy them. And Joshua, understanding that, says to the sun, stand still, and to the moon, don't move. It's an assumption that some make that it was near evening. That the sun was in the western part of the sky and the moon had risen in the eastern part of the sky. But the assumption is wrong. And if you understand the geography as the text speaks of it, you can see that the assumption is wrong. Sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. Gibeon was east of Ajalon. The sun is farther in the east. The moon is in the west. It's not late in the day. It's probably before the noon hour of the day. But Joshua understands the magnitude of the task. And he commands the sun and the moon to stand still. That day that lasted two days and the events that happened in it are recorded. Then, not just in our text, but in the verses following through approximately verse 30, and from approximately verse 31 on, are recorded events that happened the second day, we read in verse 32. The standing still of the sun and the moon, though, and this is, this is the faith of the child of God, on the basis of the word of God, That standing still of the sun and moon was Jehovah's doing. Of course, the child of God says, I know that. Because he's the one who causes the sun to rise and set anyway. Besides, the text says, the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, thereby causing the sun and the moon to stand still in their course. So you and I are ready to say of every explanation which denies the miracle that it's wrong. One approach to denying the miracle is to say that the record of our text is not historical. And for that matter, those who take that argument will say that much of what's written in the scriptures is not historical. It's a story But it is not history. And they'll point even to the text, which says there was no other day like it. And they'll say, see, the writer is cluing you in to the fact that he's just telling you a story. The child of God says, no, the inspired scriptures, and especially the historical books of the inspired scriptures, are history. They tell us what Jehovah has done. I believe that. It isn't a matter of 
the writer taking some poetic license. It isn't the matter of the writer exaggerating the matter. It isn't a matter of the writer saying so much happened in this day, it was as if it lasted two days. It is a matter of bowing before Jehovah God and saying, our God can hold the sun in his course. And there's another approach to denying the miracle, and that is to say that this is unscientific. For one thing, ever since the world began, the sun has risen and set every 24 hours. For another thing, the earth revolves around the sun. How can you say that the sun stopped? People who so argue forget that all of Scripture presents history and even geography, the geography of the universe, of, of the earth in relation to the sun, from the viewpoint of the earth. That even you and I who know that the earth revolves around the sun still say the sun rises and the sun sets. And we're not being unscientific. We're saying that's how it appears to us. And so the record, the historical record of this miracle, it was Jehovah's doing. It was not scientific. Let's grant them it was historical. Let's say that to it was Jehovah doing Jehovah's will, Jehovah's way. And there's more to that point as regards the certainty of your and my faith than just saying, Jehovah said he did, so I believe he did. There are three points of significance for our saying that Jehovah did this. In the first place, the text draws out the power of Jehovah God, especially in his control of the heavenly bodies. Scripture everywhere speaks of the power of Jehovah God. Sometimes it's his power in your life, in some organ of your body, in some disease in your body that he heals. That's his power. But no. Another time the scripture speaks of the power of God over the events of this world, the rise and the fall of nations. That's his power. Our text takes it even to a bigger scale and says Jehovah has power not just over what happens on this planet, but over the sun and the moon and the stars in their courses. You try once. You try telling the sun and the moon to stand still. Perhaps you're a busy mother. And there simply are not enough hours in a day. And you say, if I had more hours in a day, I could get more done. I could be on top of my work instead of always struggling to keep up. Sun, stand thou still. You're a farmer, perhaps. And it's planting season or it's harvest season. And if the sun would hold its course for 24 hours, think of how much more you could get done. You try that, and you'll understand immediately, you don't even have to do it to recognize. You don't have that power. Jehovah holds the sun and the moon in his courses. 
The event recorded in our text points us ahead in the New Testament to the miracles of our Lord, especially those in which he showed that he has power over the universe. When the winds and the waves obeyed him. The event recorded in our text points us ahead to the power of the exalted Jesus Christ, Jehovah's man, who in the day of his return will cause the sun and the moon to cease their shining and cause the stars to fall from heavens. This is our God. Ordinarily, the sun and the moon rise and set in 24-hour course. But when it is Jehovah's will with regard to the salvation of his people that they do something other than rise and set on a 24-hour period of time, Jehovah sees to it what power our God has. In the second place, he did not use that power at just any moment for just any reason. He used that power in the service of Israel. So that the second point about Jehovah that's, that's emphasized in the text is his covenant relationship which he has made with his people in Jesus Christ and to which relationship he remains always mindful and ever faithful. It wasn't for the benefit of Israel's enemies, but for the benefit of Israel. It wasn't for the benefit of any unbelieving nation, but for the benefit of those whom he formed at Sinai to be his own, that he causes the sun and the moon to stand still. Those whom he's redeemed from Egypt's bondage, to whom he's given already in beginning form the promised land, and whom he will give that land in all its fullness a land flowing with milk and honey, because he loves them. And so you and I are reminded that to us also has been given a promised land, a heavenly Canaan. That in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and by his resurrection power, we have already entered that land, though not entered it in its heavenly and final glory, but we have entered it in beginning form, and that the promise of Jehovah God is to do us good all the days of our life and cause us more and more to experience the blessings that he has promised in this life and for our sake. He guides the stars, the sun, and the moon in its courses. Therefore, thirdly, that this is Jehovah's doing underscores his attributes of love and grace and mercy to his people, Israel. There are some Old Testament scholars who simply cannot find in a passage such as ours the love, the grace, and the mercy of Jehovah. They can only find a bloodthirsty God. He sends the Israelites into a land that had belonged to the Canaanites for hundreds of years. 
And these Israelites pretend that they are some special people on behalf of some special God. And they're going to go rob the Canaanites of their land. And they're going to do so in a very cruel and bloodthirsty way. That's God? That's your God? The scoffer asks. It is true that there is justice here. The cup of the iniquity of the Canaanites has been filled. They have been a particularly wicked group of people. And the Lord said, your time is finished. There is a reminder of what the Lord does in the day of judgment to those whose sins are not covered by the blood of Christ. But acknowledging that there is here a picture of Jehovah's justice, the question is, how is Israel different? And by nature, you know the answer is, they aren't. They are humans just like the Canaanites. In the history of Israel in the wilderness, there are sins that are as heinous as the sins of some of the Canaanites. Israel is not in and of herself a better people, nor are you or I better persons than the wicked as regards our own natures or characters. But in his love, in his mercy, and in his grace, Jehovah has distinguished Israel and said, she's mine. Sinners, men, humans, partaking of the common misery, yes, but I will redeem her. And so she's brought out of Egypt only after a Passover lamb is slain and the blood of that lamb painted over her doorposts. And she's brought to the wilderness of Sinai and the Mount of Sinai To be formed as his people, he loves her graciously, undeservedly. That's Jehovah. Also to you, to me. He holds the sun and the moon in their courses, directs their every movement. In love for his people. And with a view to bringing us to enjoy the salvation that he has promised in Christ. That means that whatever happens in the weather, moon and stars are part of meteorological phenomena, weather-related things. Whatever happens to you and to me in the weather serves my salvation and your salvation. It might be that a tornado destroys my house. It might be that a drought means I have no crops. And this too is Jehovah's doing. For his people in Jesus Christ, he does it in love and in mercy. The means by which Jehovah accomplished this were the words of Joshua. Then spake Joshua to the Lord, 
In the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agila. Commentators discuss the question then, is this really a prayer of Joshua? Then spake Joshua to the Lord. Or is this a command of Joshua to the sun and moon themselves? Really the answer is not so difficult. You cannot look at the last part of the verse. Sun, stand thou still, and thou moon. And conclude that they are anything less than imperatives. That is, commands. He did address the heavenly bodies. But he didn't do so thinking that even he had power over them. Then spake Joshua to the Lord. First a prayer. Then in the confidence that the Lord heard and would answer his prayer, a command to the heavenly bodies in the sight of all Israel, so that the Israelites would see that through Joshua, Jehovah was working his purpose, and all Israel would fear. In fact, one of the purposes of Jehovah in using this mere man and his voice as a means is to confirm in the sight of all Israel that Joshua is their next leader. The text is in Joshua 10. Much has happened in the first 9 and 10 chapters of Joshua. Moses has been dead for some time. And yet still the people of Israel must understand that when Moses is dead, the Lord did not leave them without a leader. And it's not every man to his own. They must follow Joshua's lead. They must do Joshua's bidding. He is the one through whom Jehovah works. He is their appointed leader. And so also Joshua does great signs and wonders. There's something even striking about the sign and wonder that Joshua did in our text that makes it even greater than the signs and wonders that Moses had done. Though Moses had done great signs and wonders, brought the ten plagues upon Egypt, opened up the waters of the Red Sea by stretching out his arm over it, and in many other ways, holding up his hands toward heaven, was the means of Jehovah by which to destroy the enemies. Moses had done many great things, but never did Moses command the sun and the moon, and never did Moses initiate a miracle. Always Jehovah had said to Moses, you do this, and I will cause this great wonder to take place. But the text presents the miracle in our text as if it was the idea of Joshua himself. Part of the wonder recorded here is that there was no day like it before or after, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. It doesn't mean, of course, that the Lord doesn't hear our prayers. He does. The point is that the Lord doesn't just do wonders in creation at my request or at your request. 
He is exalting Joshua as the leader of Israel. And in that way, he points us to Jesus Christ. He is himself a type, a picture of the other Joshua. Joshua, the Old Testament Hebrew word that means Jehovah saves, which has as its Greek equivalent, Jesus, Jehovah, salvation. He points us to Jesus Christ, who does things in the behalf of the salvation of the church, about which you would say, there has been no day like it before or after. But Jesus, who combines in one office two functions, Savior of his church and the Lord of creation. I already referred to some of the miracles that Jesus performed to demonstrate that he is the Lord of creation, the stilling of the winds and waves, in distinction now from his healing the sick or raising the dead. But does not Colossians 1 verse 16 say that all things were created by him, that's Jesus Christ, and for him? It is not the church exalted in heaven, read it in Revelation 4, extol him. Jesus exalted at God's right hand who created all things. And when the Lord directs all of history in behalf of the salvation of his church, he also does not come to Jehovah and say, Father, may I? But he commands. I don't mean to leave the impression that his commands and Jehovah's will are ever at odds. That he commands something that Jehovah never decreed. No. He knows Jehovah's will. He knows the counsel of God regarding all of time and history. And he commands in order to carry out that counsel. And when he commands, no man, no beast, not the sun or the moon says, no, I will not. You see, you're pointed to your Savior. If Jehovah is exalted in the text, in what he did, if he exalts a man, Joshua, in the eyes of Old Testament Israel, as the means by which he does it, then he exalts Jesus Christ in our minds and in our hearts as the one by whom he accomplishes all things. But now, you and I who are in Christ... Look back at Joshua and say there's more going on than simply his being a type of Christ. He was, not undermining that, but there's more going on. The Lord used a mere man as a type. He always did that when he used human types. David, Solomon, the prophets, priests, and kings, they were all mere men. Sinners themselves, apart from holding their office, 
not different from you and me. And therefore, we who are in Jesus Christ are also the means of Jehovah by which and through which he accomplishes his will in the upbuilding, defending, maintaining, and preserving of his church, his covenant, and his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? It isn't to our praise and glory that I say that. That he would say to a man and a woman whom he's brought together in marriage, you are my means to the raising of covenant seed. So teach them and chastise them. And do all that I tell you to do in the scriptures. And a man and a woman say, who am I? It's what David said. When God said he would build David's house. Who am I? I don't deserve this honor. And in the end the honor is not to my glory. But it's to Jehovah's who says, this is how I work. I work through means. So I use the example of a man and a woman who become a parent. But now, really to bring it back to the text, I'll use the example not just of a Joshua, but of all the Israelites who followed Joshua. And so of all of the children of God who understand that there's a battle to fight. Spiritual battle within our hearts and all around us. And that the means of Jehovah in fighting that battle is not only hailstones and wonderful events in the heavens so that we sit back and say, I'm just going to do nothing and watch, but is also you and me redeemed by grace, regenerated by the Spirit, who have, as it were, a spiritual sword in our hand and who go and fight. Not adding to the work of Jesus Christ. Not ourselves in our own strength accomplishing something far beyond what God would have accomplished and did accomplish in Jesus Christ. But as those through whom God will perfect and bring to completion what he has done and does do in Jesus Christ. So that when we consider the means, we are still amazed at what Jehovah does. He does so with a purpose. And his purpose for the Israelites in that day was to give them a decisive and a complete victory. Not all that day. It would take more time. But the events of that day made Israel's ultimate victory over the kingdoms of the south a certainty for them. And that in three ways. In the first place, the power of the kingdoms of the south was broken on that day. Joshua still must go to the five different cities, and those are the principal cities, and all the villages. He must still destroy the cities, find the women and the children and destroy them. There's much to be done 
But the armies of those cities are diminished greatly in number, and the kings are dead. Israel has the upper hand. First of all, in that respect. In the second place, this is a day of salvation for Israel, and as much as Israel sees that her enemies, that is now the Canaanites, are destroyed. More must be destroyed, but they have begun to be destroyed. And do not overlook the fact that the Lord appointed this day, of course from eternity, but in time, already from the moment that Canaan, from whom the Canaanites descended, cursed Noah. Do not ignore the fact that the sins of the Canaanites, Sodom and Gomorrah, were among them, are known or were known even among the nations of that day as being grievous sins. And do not ignore the fact that as Joshua tells us later in 11 verse 20, the very purpose of the Lord to make the Gibeonites make peace with the Israelites was to harden the hearts of these five kings, to move them against Israel so that Joshua might destroy them. And now the Israelites see the chief of their enemies dead and the bodies of the kings hanging on a tree and they say, the Lord will give us the victory. And therefore in the third place, This was a decisive victory for Israel, even though not finished. She was not finished fighting, but the decisive victory in that it was the largest show of human force to that point since Israel crossed the Jordan River. And the Lord says to to the Israelites, don't you worry about numbers. I will take care of them. Remember how Jericho was conquered. There was really no human force. March around it seven days. And the walls fall down. Remember in the end how AI is conquered. There is a human force to speak of. But there's an ambushment. And it's by trickery and deceit. Which are fair wartime tactics. That the city is destroyed. And yet now, for the first time, the Israelites see thousands and thousands of soldiers coming against them. And Jehovah says, you will receive this land. Those points are pertinent for you and for me as we fight the battles of faith. Battles in defense of the truth, of the glory of God and of his covenant. Battles against sin in our own hearts and forces of sin that seem so strong. The captain of the host is with us. He is our Lord Jesus Christ who fights in us and through us. The battle, or rather the enemies against which we fight, appear stronger, greater, and more powerful than we do. You cannot, I cannot, single-handedly take on Satan and be the victor. He is stronger than we are. And yet the Lord says to us, 
as we go face him in a day of spiritual battle, or one of his demons, do not be afraid. Only do not put your trust in yourself, but look to Jehovah, the God who has power over all creation, the devils themselves being creatures, and who has love, grace, and mercy for his people in Christ, and believe that for Christ's sake, The victory is yours. There was one day that lasted two days. There was another day in history in which at the very moment the sun should have been shining brightly, it ceased to shine altogether for three hours. A day in which the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ, not for any wrong he had done, but on account of his bearing my sin and your sin. A day in which Jehovah bore that wrath in full, for he rose again the third day, and even before he rose, the sun shone yet again the third hour. You and I, in fighting the battles of our faith, look back to that And we see that that day the Lord who died for us obtained the victory for us. And when he arose three days later, he did so to show us that his cause is triumphant. And now when he puts you and me by his grace in his service, he says, fear not, the heavenly Canaan shall be yours. Do not look to the strength of your enemy. Do not look to the power or the numbers or the size of your enemy. Look to what Jesus Christ has done for you and is doing in you. And go forward in faith. As Joshua and Israel did that, on that day that lasted two days, and the days that followed, they obtained the southern part of the land of Canaan. How much more will we not finally one day obtain the heavenly Canaan for our possession? And in that day we will not say, I did it. I fought. But in that day we will say, the battle was the Lord's and he fought for us and in us. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, to to whom be all glory, honor, and praise, now and forever, receive our praises. Keep us from thinking that what we do in behalf of thy church and covenant we do in our own strength, but also keep us from supposing that because it is thy battle and thy doing, we need do nothing. We do nothing to supplement or supplant what our Lord did for us. But now give us to speak his word and fight his battles and understand it's he in us. For Christ's sake, amen.